Hey, Brian. Good afternoon. <laughs> Depending on when they're listening. That's Last right. Last week, you said you wanted to talk about demonic possession. Guess what I, I did this week? I'm hoping it's <laughs> demonic possession. It is. You might say I felt compelled to talk about this. <laughs> I'm Jared. And I'm Brian. And this is Biblically Speaking, the podcast. Hey, thanks, everybody, for joining us. This is our fourth week together, our fourth official podcast. I've had one that's gone on for a couple of years now, and Brian has done a lot of things on Facebook and YouTube that are like this. But if you have been religiously, I don't know if I should say religiously, if you've been dedicated to following this podcast, you're part of the family. And we want to say thank you for being back for this one. So last week during the show, we were talking about Satan and things that the Bible tells us that are true about Satan and how we separate that from some of the mischief that people get into, if you will, in, in trying to create more information about him than is there. And one of the things that came up during the course of that discussion was demonic possession. And as we were wrapping up that show, and it was just Brian and I, he looked at me across the camera and he says, I really want to do that show on demonic possession. In fact, could we do that next week? And I'm just going to open the floor to Brian, my co-host, and just, Brian, why was this a topic that you really wanted to talk about? What's so compelling about it to you? Last week, as we were talking about Satan, one of the things that's interesting is that we have a society that's just obsessed with Satan um, oh, in so many ways. But it's not – if you go back in time, you'll find that there were always people that were obsessed with things about the devil. They were occultists. They were uh, – sometimes the word Satanist gets used to throw it in there as well. And it's interesting how those beliefs have always been around. I think we always get a couple of comments thrown into our YouTube chat. Yeah. Uh, from some folks that would identify themselves that way. And it, it's an interesting thing to think about. Why is that interesting at all? Why is the conversation about Satan or about demons something that so many people have an interest in? And I'm, I kind of wonder about that. What's the answer to that? I wonder about that, too. And unless you were living under a rock about the performance at this year's Grammys, and that's nothing new. It seems like every year there's some kind of shock performance that's meant to look like a satanic ritual or the invoking of Satan or something like that. And it seems to be something that our culture is making light of. And I, and I, and I referenced Baudelaire last week when we talked about the greatest, the greatest deception. I can't remember exactly how he phrased it, but the greatest deception the devil ever pulled over on man was convincing him that he didn't exist. And I think the devil is quite comfortable being a caricature that allows him to operate more freely. It allows him to minimize what he's really doing because people are enthralled by that. But let me turn your own question back to you before we jump into the actual demonic possession. Why, if you thought about it, and you're a history buff, so you're not just taking the last 10, 20 years. I'm a history buff too, but Brian makes me look like a noob. But uh, if you take the last 10, 20 years, I think it's pretty obvious it's probably for shock value or at least some of it. But throughout history, people have had a fascination with Satan. And I've heard a lot of explanations from that being adopting the worship of pagan cultures and labeling it satanic to actual interest in conjuring the devil. But you go back in history and you've got the tale of Dr. Faust or somebody like that that sold his soul to the devil. What's the fascination in your mind from that historical perspective? I think the idea of occultism in general is the idea of something that's secret and knowledge. And there's, we talked about last time in our study that there's some who think that Satan rules in hell and that there's an authority mm -hmm. and a power to be gained through him. And that a lot of people think that they would just really would like to have access to some kind of secret knowledge or secret power. I think sometimes that's the appeal of these things, particularly in the Middle Ages. 
when Satanism had a pretty good track record during times when people would engage in a cult-like or forms of witchcraft that were occult-like, that were satanic. And I think that there was always an appeal to a secret knowledge that people had a great desire for. I think, though, in more modern times, it's merely people's desire to be rebellious, to be controversial, to be appear or to come across as who's, who's rebellious. I think that's the appeal of it. I think we mentioned last time that there's a television show going by the name Lucifer, and it just, mm-hmm. again, the appeal of it is to be the person who's rebellious, and that attitude is something that a lot of people treasure and have a value in. It is strange. You mentioned the idea of secret knowledge, and we've talked about First John and Gnosticism before on this program, which is really a cult of secret knowledge that sort of rose up against Christianity and was on the rise even in, at the end of the early first century. What today is even among the rungs of power, if you will. There are secret societies that are just whispered about things like, what is it, the skull and bones at the, what, I can't remember what university that is. It's not Harvard, Yale. Yeah. That, uh, the skull and bones society, you had the, what was it, the Bilderberg society that's operate, supposed to be operating somewhere in San Francisco that so many presidents are part of that they go in the woods and worship an owl or something like that. I don't know how much of that is true. I don't want to get into all the tinfoil hat stuff, but there's at least something to it that a lot of people in power do tend to belong to certain exclusive clubs that claim exclusive knowledge, if you will. And I, and that can even be something like the Masons or something, something of that nature that's a little more probably benign and out there in front of everybody. But what is that? I think that there is a strange mixture of this desire to be set apart and this desire to rebel in a bohemian kind of way that is driving people in the direction of the occult. And you think about how recently that's become so accepted in our society that that the idea of witchcraft and Wiccan and things like that being being accepted as a religion as opposed to getting back to the roots of it and seeing that it was really always about some kind of worship of the devil or, or appealing to the devil as if – and you used the illustration from last week – as if he has some kind of power and control and can bless in the same way that God can bless. But let's get right to the Bible. What is demon possession? I'm going to ask you the first question out of the box because you know, and you can – we'll go back and forth like we did last week. But what is demon possession? So let me give a couple of answers here. First of all, let's talk about okay. demons in the Old Testament and demons in the New Testament. But I guess maybe the first question is to say, really, what is a demon? Sure. Um, and I don't have a great answer for that. We know that sometimes demons We know they are, believe and tremble, right? Yeah, that's right. Demons believe but that that's and, not, in God. But that's not sufficient. God. Yeah, that's right. So James 2 tells us that. We know that demons obey God. They uh, submit to God. They call Jesus Lord. There's a lot of important ideas that again, demons aren't some vast conspiracy to overthrow God. They're completely under subjection to God in some way. Demons are sometimes called the angels of Satan. Again, mm-hmm. let's understand the word angel just means a messenger. So it's probably a pretty broad term there. Right. Um, so we know that sometimes they're referred to as evil spirits. And in fact, we think that's where we find them in the Old Testament. Whenever we read about evil spirits, we read about an yeah. evil spirit that, like the spirit uh, of melancholy that descended on Saul. That, that's that, right. That's right. So yeah. the spirit on Saul, the lying or the deceiving spirit that went to Ahab's prophet. The, there are yeah. several different times that we get a sense of spirits that are consuming men and causing them discomfort and perhaps mm-hmm. see them as demons. The other manifestation of demons in the Old Testament and the New Testament as is as false god. Leviticus 17 and verse 7 and Second Chronicles 11 verse 15 both tell us that that many of the false gods were in fact 
demons. Exactly how that what that means isn't entirely clear. It just gives us a yeah. very blunt, straightforward statement. It's re- and that's restated, by the way, in the New Testament, the book of 1 Corinthians. That mm-hmm. doesn't seem to have changed either. So demon possession, there really isn't demon possession in the Old Testament. We know that demons cause problems to people, but it seems to be something exclusive to the New Testament. Right. There are 63 times in the New Testament where they are referred to in this manner as having an ability to plague a person. Sometimes it's not really clear the differences in the kinds of people. Sometimes uh, they're adults, sometimes they're children, which would tell us that it's not necessarily the idea of of an evil person is necessarily a candidate for being possessed in the time of Christ. I will say it's, it's nice for us because we do actually know why. We can say, why is it that they came in that time period And why Mm -hmm. is it that they weren't before that? And of course, we're going to say something rather controversial in a moment. We're going to say, why is it that they're not after that? Why aren't they around today? And that's because demons were there for two specific purposes. One was so that the power of Jesus could be demonstrated. Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 11, elsewhere, Jesus would make it clear that his power to cast out demons demonstrated his power didn't come from Satan, but came from God. This is Mm -hmm. the expression where Jesus says, a house divided against itself will not stand. Luke 11, verses 14 through 16, Jesus makes that clear and says that if I can cast out demons, I'm demonstrating to you that, number one, I'm not doing things by satanic power, and number two, that the kingdom of God has come upon you. But secondly, it's also there because Jesus needs to demonstrate that he has the power to overcome Satan. And that's Mm -hmm. going to be the bigger conversation about demon possession that leads into our second question of spiritual warfare and the like. But by overcoming demons, Jesus will demonstrate he has the power to overcome Satan himself, which is the gospel, the power of the gospel. So we know that's why demons existed in the first century, why they had the power to possess people so that Jesus and subsequently his disciples could then cast them out demonstrating their power. It's been an interesting conversation. I was thinking about so many different things when you were going through there, and I didn't want to interrupt your flow, but the idea that they are subject to the will of God, and yet they are not obedient to the will of God, that they're not, obviously, Jesus sets him apart, himself apart from the demons, that they're subject to God's will, but they're not obedient to it. And that's, that in some ways, that sounds like us. We're subject to his will. We're not going to be able to thwart his will, but at the same time, we're not always obedient to the will of God. And that's a fine line that that a lot of I know denominations struggle with that that how can you be subject to the will of God but not obedient to it? Well, it is that when you mentioned hell a moment ago that Satan ruling in hell and that not being a biblical concept. It, Jesus tells you that hell is prepared for the devil and his messengers or the devil and his angels. It's a place of punishment because you have those that are subject to the will of God but are not obedient to the will of God, and yet they're not going to be able to thwart the will of God. And I think that's one of the things that our culture gets so wrong about demon possession and demons in general is that they are somehow spiritual forces or of under Satan's control where he is flexing his might in some kind of way against God in a way that that makes you wonder who's got more power. Yeah, and it's interesting. We're really absent in the scriptures of demons working in a cohesive relationship with Satan. In other words, there's no statement where it says Satan's going to send his demons and they're going to do his bidding. We just don't know necessarily that's how they operate. It's never stated like that. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's almost like a. You remember when you, this is a weird analogy, but you remember when you played hopscotch when you were a kid? That you draw out that grid on the sidewalk, and eventually the lines would become blurred, and you couldn't tell which box you were stepping in. When you start talking about, and maybe that was just me. We use poor chalk. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get the fancy chalk. We were we had the chalk that was inside the bricks, but the um, but the there's a blurring of a line between an evil spirit, a demon, a messenger from Satan, and Satan himself. That we blur all of these lines together, and the entity. And you talked about saying something controversial. I guess I'll be the one to start that ball rolling. The entity that's done more to blur this line than anyone else has is the Catholic Church. It's the one who claims to know the most about it, and yet the things they say don't fit with what we see in the Scripture. Well now, said. One of, and one of the things that you mentioned that you and you said this very clearly that the Bible tells us, and you use the example of Luke fourteen, but or Luke eleven, but the Bible tells us very clearly there were some limitations that were put on these evil spirits or these demons. And the passage that came to my mind is, and I mentioned this one last week in the show was Matthew chapter eight, where Jesus casts out the demons from the man in the in the country of the Gadarenes. And it says, and they cried out in verse 29, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And so they knew that they had a limited time on earth and that they were, they asked Jesus specifically, (laughs) I'll never forget the first time my little boy heard this story. He said, dad, I said, what? He said, we talked about two things at church today. I said, what were they? He says, Jesus cleansed the leopards. And then he, he was healing a man that had demons in him. And he drove the demons out of the man and they went into the pigs and they became devil pigs. <laughs> and you could just see in his mind that this was something, and he's five years old at this time, this was something epic to him that there were devil pigs. And, but yeah. it didn't end well for him. That they ran down in, into the sea and were apparently destroyed in whatever way demons are destroyed. But I don't know that you can say they died, but... But whatever transpired to them, the alternative of leaving that one, and that was the man that's called Legion. In fact, I think it's Luke's account that says that there, or Mark's account said that there were two men, and one of them had multiple demons inside him. That 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 cohort of demons, they were afraid of meeting their end. They're not eternal. They're not. They're afraid of being bound and sent back somewhere, or disposed of, or killed, or however you describe it. They're afraid of that, and they're pleading with Jesus not to do that to them. And so it even says in Matthew's account, he permitted them to go into the swine. And so you think about that, and that really sort of answers the question, are we dealing with an influence here that is really has a lot of power and a lot of control? Now, it, the scripture does tell us they were doing some pretty impressive things. Those guys could break the shackles that were put around them, and they were howling in graveyards. And you have the example of the child that was possessed by an unclean spirit that was throwing him, making the boy try to drown himself and throw himself in the fire and things like that that after the the transfiguration of Jesus these are they were scary entities they absolutely were but they don't they didn't have the power to do the kinds of things that that you hear about you don't hear any biblical examples of demons or unclean spirits making people walk up walls or turn their head around backwards or throw up snails or nails or any other thing that that I've heard in multiple interviews about Catholic exorcisms and things like that, that there's just no evidence of that. In fact, at one point I shared a video with you that was done by Michael Knowles, a guy that I, I consider a pretty strong intellectual. And he shares a video that's about a, almost two hours long with this interview with a Catholic priest. And he's claiming to have this video of a of a 110-pound nun walking up a wall that was seen in front of a conference of thousands. I'm like, why didn't you show it on this program? That Why didn't you show it now? Where is that? And it just seems like every time you see it, there's always something that can debunk it. It's always a camera trick. It's always this or that. And it reminds me of so many other things, but I'm getting off topic. Is there anything else you want to add to this? 
No, that's just, again, you know, the concept of economic possession. Mark chapter one, Jesus meets the first demon after mm-hmm. having been baptized. And when he, when he casts out the demon, the people realize that this means something new is happening because they say, what is this? What new doctrine is this? What, look at the authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And we need to appreciate that's what demons were all about. That's why they yep. were there 2000 years ago was so Jesus could show up and he could demonstrate he had something new and powerful and divine. And it wasn't occultic. It wasn't the witchcraft of those like Janus and Jambres, the Egyptian priests or other occultic things that were going on. This was something new and it was a power over the occult. Yeah, Mark chapter 1 is another one of those examples where the demon professes who Jesus is. And again, that the Pharisees would try to turn that around later and say, look, that means he's in league with Satan. And he uses that example of, look, do you, do you break into a strong man's house and just take his stuff or do you have to bind him first? I think that there is a little, again, that, that kind of blurring of the lines of what they are and what they really meant and how they operated. So then if I think about this, we've talked about the idea here that demonic possession, something long ago. But we do say spiritual warfare is something we're doing today. We talked last week about our adversary, the devil, and how we're still in a conflict with him. We have these right. great spiritual warfare passages in Scripture like 2 Corinthians chapter 10 or Ephesians chapter 6, where he talks about putting on the whole armor of God. What's the difference uh-huh. then between demonic possession and this spiritual warfare that the New Testament talks about. It's interesting to me that when you look at passages on spiritual warfare, there's not a single one that deals with Satan taking control of someone, that there's not a single instance of, and you used the illustration last week of the last, the only time in Scripture where you see Satan in control of anyone is when it says, maybe, maybe, I want to stress maybe, when the Scripture says he entered Judas and that, or he entered Judas's heart. And that was based not on anything that Satan was doing against Judas's will, but based on Judas's predisposition to be a thief. And it seems like if you're following the text, Judas is getting ready to run from Christ because he's starting to see the wheels coming off, if you will. There's a lot of unpopularity here, and it seems like Judas is not really in it anymore. He's only there because he has been, maybe. And so that seems to be an avenue. And that sort of reminds me of the words, in fact, I just recorded a short on this just a moment ago, of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, when he warns about being angry and he says, do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. And we do need to realize that the devil can operate in our lives and can use forces of wickedness in our lives without taking control of us. And that is always what in passages you used Ephesians 6 as an example, probably the most well-known passage in the Bible. We could go to we could go to 1 Corinthians 16, 13, which is essentially where the name of name of my other podcast comes from. Man up, equip yourselves like men, get ready for the fight. But the fight is not is not holy water and little girls with spirits living inside them. The fight that he's talking about here is an inward struggle against an outward world. And if you look at the anatomy of a temptation in James chapter 1, it tells you that it it skips over the outside influence of temptation because it's focusing on the inner man. It says that starts within you. It's something that you allowed to grow. And then when it becomes full-blown, lust becomes temptation and temptation becomes death. That's the anatomy of a sin, if you will. It's not about something being in control of us so much as it is we have surrendered ourselves to some other way than the way that Jesus would have us to walk. 
And when you stop and you think about passages like Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God is not priest and crucifixes. The armor of God is the ble- the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sandals of peace, the shield of faith, the sword of the word of God, and the helmet of salvation. That you don't, you, there's no invocation of priests, there's no invocations of crucifixes or holy waters. If that's what God wanted us to use to do battle with this kind of stuff, he would have told us, go make yourself a crucifix. There is nothing in scripture about driving out, the, in fact, the one demon that I can think of, the evil spirit, unclean spirit that's driven out, out, where Jesus actually tells his disciples how to drive it out was one that was particularly stubborn that he said, you weren't going to be able to drive it out without prayer and fasting. Yeah. That, that there's no crucifixes, there's no catechism prayer, there's no write the apostles creed, there's none of that. It's all made up whole cloth. None of it is in scripture anywhere. And if that was necessary for them to have done battle with the these demon, these unclean spirits that we know continued into the book of Acts, because we see Peter and, I'm sorry, we see Paul and Silas driving one out at one point that in the book of Acts, and you see the seven sons of Sceva and the trouble that they got into with trying to take on that mantle without really being of Christ, then what is that there were plenty of places where if that's how this was something we're going to be doing battle with today and it when we needed crucifixes or special prayers or creeds that were written down and signed in blood and all the other kinds of things if the devil could take control of us with a contract rather than just surrendering our will to him then the bible would have warned us about that and none of it is there but one of the things that i do like to think about sometimes and i'm not really sure how settled I am on this, is maybe the influences look more like they did in the first century, or not the first century, but in the Old Testament. And let me show right. you why I'm, why that's coming to me as, a, as at least a possibility, that when you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and it says, let's see, I just lost my place here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning verse 8, it says, Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. And we talked about that being a world power, or at least it looks like a world power, if you read the few verses before that, with the breath of his mouth and bringing to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so they will believe what is false. That's an intri- That's almost Old Testament kind of language there, isn't it? And when you think about it, going back to that first question that we asked, that unofficial question, why are we so obsessed with this? It is a deluding influence. It is something that is taking people's attention off of God and saying the devil's way is better. I think... Can't remember. I think the guy's name was Sam Harris that performed it at the Grammys this year. I can't remember. I didn't watch it and won't watch it. But it was a very sexualized, fetishized song that was being sung about adultery, where he appeared to be Satan engaging in sexual activity with women that were writhing around him. And I got that from looking at about three clips that, or not clips, but images that rolled across my screen in a news story. And you see this, and you say, okay, this is. This is something that is celebrating evil, and it is a deluding influence, like the party's more fun on the devil's side of the fence kind of thing. It's all sex and lust and 
all of the things that you want to engage in and what's that path that you see in Romans 1 about God giving them over to these baser things, it sounds like that same kind of influence. Now, I'm going to turn it over to you and see what your thoughts on this are. But. Yeah, so I wholeheartedly agree. I believe that what we really need to understand is that the demonic influence of the Old Testament is what the Christian today needs to appreciate. And that demonic influence came through things around us. I already mentioned that in the Old Testament, we're told that the false idols were actually demons. And we're told the same thing later in the New Testament to Christians in the book of 1 Corinthians. Again, that contrast is telling us that demonic power comes by influence. And this will give us a reason for some of the language that's found in the scriptures about doctrines of demons or about demonic wisdom. James talks about the demonic wisdom that's carnal and sensual. One of the fascinating things about the pagan worship of Baal was things like child sacrifice and things like sexual immorality. And yeah. what are you talking about whenever you're talking about the Grammys? Well, you're talking about well, sexual immorality. Celebration Child's, of it. Yeah, celebration of it. Child sacrifice is a pretty profound type of child sacrifice where people sacrifice to their freedom of choice. These things tend to repeat themselves. And because of yeah. that, it would seem clear that the influence, the demonic influence that comes... And again, we're talking about the idea that demonic influence comes through the things of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life, things like that, that we're saying that this demonic influence then tends to repeat itself in the same behaviors and the same conduct uh, again yeah. and again. And when we talk about what does a Christian today need to know about demons, we need to know that demons still influence the world around us and that People fall into the same habits and problems, and we think we're somehow much more sophisticated and savvy and knowledgeable mm -hmm. society, but we're not. We're no different than Baal worshippers of years ago. We're no different than the Canaanites, than the, the Carthaginians and their things that the Romans used to point out, and then they themselves did. The point yeah. is, just as brutal a people as ever, and demonic influence is why that is that we're never far from demonic influence in this. And I think that's eye-opening because sometimes we, when we have those influences in our life and we say we almost normalize it, like lust is a normal thing or being enslaved to pornography is a normal thing. It's normal in that it appeals to something that, that's in us, that, that's reaching out, trying to corrupt something innate within us, that, like the place of the sexual relationship in marriage. It's trying to corrupt something that God put there that's good, but... We don't often think about—go back and think about what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, that don't be angry, or be angry, but don't sin, and don't let the sun go down on your wrath, and don't give a place to Satan. If Satan can take my anger, and he can use it against me and tempt me into sin, then he can certainly take my lust and use it against me through the power of influence and lure me into sin. And, and that's—we that don't often think about that, that— your sin is not a natural part of your life. It is the influence of someone who is trying to corrupt something that God is trying to grow within you. And that's why, and I've said this many times on on both on, on Biblically Speaking programs, I think I've said it on this podcast, I know I've said it on the Man Up podcast several times, the battle that we fight that we really have to win is not with our culture, it's with, that's the part that we have to get under the submission to God. The Grammys are never going to be under submission to God. 
But the melancholy spirit, the angry spirit, the frustrated spirit, the spirit that says, I want to give up, the spirit that's in love with money, the spirit that's tempted by lust, that lives within me, I've got to get those things under control and make sure that I'm surrendering all of that to God. Because if I'm not, then somebody else is going to use that not for God's glory. And so it's important for us to understand that the whole concept of spiritual warfare, almost stepping at, taking a step back to the to the fictional accounts of, of demonic battles, and as you said, they're using holy water and incantation. Ironically, they're using occult things to battle occult things. It's silly. Uh -huh. They're using incantations. That's occult. They're using special signals and things. It's all occult. And let's throw it out there and say Catholicism is one of many occult organizations that manifest that and again fight occult with occult. But what does Paul say? Paul says, hey, the weapons of our warfare, real spiritual warfare, he says they're not carnal. They're not their ideas. He says that they're I'm thinking now of Second Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. They're about casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself, bringing thoughts into captivity. Controlling the mm -hmm. flesh, in other words. The whole idea of demonic warfare and this idea of battling demons, people, it's not about occult. It's not occult versus occult. It's the things of God versus the things of the flesh. That's what the that's what the scriptures again and again want to tell us. And it's a great thing for people to get distracted by, to think that this is a an occult-like warfare waged with occult tools, and it's silly. And yet there's a lot of people in the world caught up in that silliness. It's entirely sensual. You talked about James chapter 3 a moment ago. It, it pleases the senses that I can, I'm really struggling against something flesh and blood, and if I have a crucifix made out of the right kind of wood, then I can drive out this demon. Or if I make the sign of the cross, then that demon is going to have to leave me alone because suddenly Jesus or Mary is going to come and assist me in that, that... It's entirely occult. It's just not substantiated by Scripture. It's not substantiated by the Bible. And you can, and you can take the catechisms and you can do whatever you want to with them. But even the early Catholic Church acknowledged that the Bible that we have is the Bible, and that nowhere in it contains any doctrine about fighting demons, much less any doctrine about hierarchies of priests and popes and things like that. It's just not there. And yet the largest perpetuator of this influence is this organization that's claiming to be the church that Christ is the head of. And all of the things that they invoke, the idea of spirits being able to act on your behalf in heaven, and are all very occult-like ideas. And that leads us to the third question, and this one's from me to you. What do we make about all these claims of exorcism and demon possession? What are we supposed to do with those today? There's a lot of people who are good people who have a who have seem to be very level-headed and don't seem to be wanted deceiving, don't seem to want to deceive people who are making a lot of very bold claims about this. It reminds me of speaking in tongues and doctrines like that. Actually, it's very much like speaking in tongues and doctrines like that. And let's be clear to say, we're not really just focusing on, say, the Catholic Church. While they do have a very official position on these kind of things, lots of Protestant churches do the same. And lots yeah. of people that I like to listen to, you were talking about listening to somebody, you know, somebody whom you respect. I can think of several people who I respect, and they'll come back and say, well, I, you can't tell me demonic possession isn't real because I've seen demons and I've cast them out. 
And oftentimes what people are describing is one of several things. Number one, they're describing, and this is when they're genuine and honest. There's also a lot mm-hmm. of charlatans. There's a lot of yeah. fraud. Yeah, there's but, the guy that walked on water then fell off the plate of glass on the river. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or the guy that was supposed to be raising somebody from the dead and the guy in the casket started laughing while he was talking over him. I remember that one too. And that got the, it was in Africa and that got the guy that was supposedly casting him out beat up by the audience when they realized they were being, sorry to go into that. So here's the point though. So a lot of times what we're talking about is number Number one, mental illness. In fact, let's be clear to say mental illness and physical debilitation, a lot of times in the New Testament, that's how demons manifested themselves were through these mm-hmm. physical ailments. And where we talk about things like epilepsy or seizures or mm-hmm. things like that. Jesus and so, had, to dis- had to distinguish between the two. Exactly. But, and there was a yeah. difference. There is a yeah. difference between an epilepsy. But they, they manifested themselves in that way. And there was a difference between an epilepsy of the flesh and an epilepsy that was caused by a malignant spirit. And they were treated very different ways. Jesus healed some people and cast out spirits from others. That's Mm -hmm. different. Those aren't the same things. So, yeah, sometimes I think some people are missing that point. But number two, a lot of times when people talk to me about having confronted demons, they're oftentimes just talking about somebody who was just really evil. And I think one of the things we don't appreciate is that people can be pretty evil. People can be pretty terrible and they can be deluded. They can convince themselves that they're deluded. And let's think about a lot of different kinds of delusions. Somebody can convince themselves they are possessed by a demon. I've met people Mm -hmm. like that. I've met people that were convinced. And I sat down with them and I said, if you were, if you're a Christian, then you have complete power over demons and this demon can't be a problem for you. And they didn't like that answer because they Mm -hmm. had convinced themselves, just as you said, People can convince themselves they're speaking in tongues. People can convince themselves that they're born in sin and therefore can't control themselves. People can convince themselves of a great number of things and convincing yourself that you're possessed by a demon isn't really that dramatic of a conviction. It's not really that unusual to be able to do so. Now, and it's interesting that the more they convince themselves, the more dramatic the story becomes. And I've known people in my life that have believed all kinds of spiritual things that happened in their lives. And the more they tried to communicate it to you, the more the story changed and grew. And I have no doubt in my mind that some of these people literally believe they saw someone levitate off a couch or something like that. But just like with Satan, we talked about last week, the mind fills in the gaps and that you can, the guy in the Michael Knowles program can tell me that he showed a video or saw a video of a woman climbing a wall that was 200, it was a hundred pounds and had been demon possessed for two years in front of 2000 people. But Where's the video mm-hmm. that and why can't it be substantiated in some other kind of way? And it's interesting to me how much of that, that when you ask those kinds of questions, it is suddenly dangerous to talk about because you're opening a door that you can't close is the kind of warning that you get. I don't want to take you down that road because you're opening a door that you can't close. No, if I need to be doing spiritual warfare, then I need to know more about it. Then we absolutely need to be opening this door because the only way you're going to close it is by knowing that it exists. You're not going to be able to deal with it otherwise. And, and that's really my struggle with all of this is that you're making these, they make these bold claims and yet they seem to become more fanciful or they're not really that bold at all. It's just, like you said, there are evil people in this world. When I think of an evil person, the picture that always comes to my mind is Charles Manson. Mm-hmm. That, that that guy just looked evil. He, and if there ever was a person that was demon possessed, you would think it would have to be that guy. But it turns out he was just a really evil person. And he was really wicked and he was dabbling in some of these things and became fascinated with it. And that's the, that's the explanation for him. 
And, you know, there, there's no evidence that he was being controlled by anything outside. He wasn't doing anything superhuman. He was just evil and insane. And sometimes that's the answer. People are just evil and insane. Yeah. And it's, it is fascinating that, again, the New Testament doesn't once tell us about how somebody might be taken over by a demon, but it does mm-hmm. say how we can be taken over by our flesh. You know, how yes. I was thinking of the term that Paul uses a couple of times when your God is your belly, your own appetites, mm-hmm. your own desires, and your glory is your shame. You set your mind on worldly things. You can do, you'll do a great many terrible things horrible evil things whenever you've we've gone down that path yeah so as we talk about this i'd like to know more about again how to deal with demons in the reality that's today and why there are these statements about things like doctrines or demons or demonic wisdom so what do you think what do we tell people when they have that question about james 3 or First Timothy four. Let's start. Let's actually take a look at those passages. I'd like to go over to First Timothy four and see what Paul is actually saying there. It says in First Timothy chapter four, verse one. This is talking about an apostasy, which is interestingly enough is the same thing that Paul was talking about in Second Thessalonians chapter two. We went to a few moments ago where it said he was going to send them strong delusions, and we talked a bit about the idea of a world power that was going to be motivated to draw people away from God. And and I think that there's been a power like that in every age. I think clearly in Paul's day, it was Rome. Some would argue that they see kind of illustrations or shades. And again, it's not picking on Catholics, but shades of the Catholic church in that. But it's interesting that Paul is talking about apostasy again here. He says in chapter 4, verse 1 of 1 Timothy, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. It's interesting that he separates those two out. Deceitful spirits seem to be the kinds of lusts that are just at work in our lives. They're not necessarily a doctrine. It's not professing something against Christ. It's it's just just the deception of spirits, like the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil or every kind of evil, that the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of, so here's how they operate, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which is interesting because Paul said, Paul forbid marriage at one point in time because of the difficult times in which they lived, but he wasn't doing that from the standpoint of, I absolutely tell you as your father in Christ that you can't marry anyone or you can't marry this person. But it seems like what you're seeing is when you line that up with abstaining from foods, that what you're seeing is probably a reference to Judaizing teachers mm-hmm. coming in and deceiving people. And again, it's interesting that he draws a distinction between deceitful spirits, which seem to be affecting us at individual levels, and doctrines of demons, which are teachings that, that are not necessarily teaching you to serve a demon, but they're corrupting the truth of Christ. And the means that they come by is not by forcefully taking control of you. It's by using the words of people who will lie and deceive you. That's, Paul, we're going to warn us about evil demons being able to literally take control of our body and give us superhuman strength and speak strange languages that we didn't know. If he were, go- if he were going to warn us there, wouldn't this be the place that he did it? Exactly. And also, wouldn't he tell us things like, hey, these are, you know, these are satanic beings that are causing these problems. Instead, yeah. he says these are believers who fall away, who depart mm-hmm. from the faith. 
and they're the ones that are that are creating these concepts and these ideas. And he points to a very identifiable and understandable source for these concepts and these doctrines. I like how you said that identifiable and understandable is the source of these. And what's interesting about this, and this is a little bit of a side, but I want you to go back to the Salem witch trials in your mind that you remember that period in history, right? Yeah, I went to the Salem Winch Trial Museum, which oh. is an interesting thing in Salem, and uh, it's quite the, quite the experience. What's interesting about this is I don't know a single person, and maybe Arthur Miller's The Crucible sort of changed our thinking on this. I don't know a single person alive that I have ever met in my lifetime, even some who profess to believe in literal demonic possession and witchcraft. Witchcraft, not like people practicing witchcraft, but witchcraft as being a force to be used in the universe, who believe that was legitimate, that those girls were actually taken over by a demonic, unclean spirit and doing those things. Everyone believes it was, everyone I know, everyone I've ever met, including ardent believers in demon possession, will tell you that that wasn't real demon possession. What makes it not real? How do you know at this point? If you're going to open that door and say it's real and that they're not deceiving people who are trying to gather attention for themselves, who are trying to corrupt people's faith and take it away from Jesus and put it on them or the attention off of Jesus and put it on them, which is exactly what Paul says those who are going to cause this apostasy were going to do, that how do you know if there's literal demonic possession in the world? And to me, that's one of the biggest takeaways for me when I start looking at people that, that want to claim the validity of this today is when you go back through history, what about this? No, that wasn't real. Why not? Why not? Why are you willing to say that's not real? Because it's explainable. What Paul just said is that all of this is explainable in some kind of way. Now, what's interesting, and you often hear that Paul and James are pitted against each other, that James and Paul and Peter never agree, which is ludicrous to me because Peter calls Paul's words scripture, but... James actually talks quite a bit about this in, <clears throat> in James chapter 3. And this was one of the passages that you referenced earlier. But this is the end of James 3 after he's warned about controlling the tongue. He says in verse 13, Who among you is wise and has understanding? Let him show by his good behavior and deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you, are, but if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. The wisdom... That This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where there is jealousy and selfishness, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What's interesting about that is he says that the demonic, natural, earthly wisdom, when you see it, here's the form it takes. And it's not little girls walking up walls or turning their heads 180 degrees. It is jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and evil things. That's what he says comes from the influences, the demonic influences that are at work at this world. And one of the things that you pointed out last week that I want to bring back up again is when we were talking, answering the question, is Satan ruling in hell or will Satan rule in hell, is that we're not even told that Satan or any of these things are presently in hell. We're just, we're, in fact, we're told that they're operating in the world around us right now. And what is their tool? It's jealousy, it's selfish ambition, it's disorder, it's corrupting of God's order. You think about all of the sexual gender confusion that's in the world today, that's corrupting God's order and every evil thing. 
those who are fo- who are not following those spirits, they're going to sow the seed whose fruit is righteousness in peace because they desire peace. He immediately pivots away from that and starts talking about, okay, so what's happening with among the churches? What are all these fights and quarrels and disagreements coming from? It's coming from the fact that they're listening to that demonic earthly wisdom. And the answer to that is not a crucifix. It's not a, it's not a father coming in with a prayer or signing a contract in blood so that the contract you made with the devil can be null and void. It is to humble yourself before God and let him lift you up. End of story. Now you asked the question, I'm going to turn it back over to you. What do you think about these doctrines? Yeah, I think that what's fascinating about this is you have a statement like, here is the earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom. Now, what's interesting mm-hmm. is those are synonyms, meaning worldly or earthly, meaning natural or sensual, and demonic, the doctrine of demons, that what we're saying is these ideas that are uh, that come from the flesh are demonic. These ideas that are self-serving. And that's one of the neat things of verse 16. He says, envy and self-seeking. How many times do you meet people who say, I think, I feel God says this or does that? Maybe you bump into somebody who says, hey, I think it's okay to use instrumental music in church. Why? Because it feels okay to me. That, that's a demonic thought process. And the reason it's demonic is it's about what I feel and I think. It's not a say, I submit myself to God. What's God want? What does God say? It's this what this feels good to me. This feels okay to me. This seems right to me. And how many people in the world today who profess to know Jesus Christ, who profess to be godly people, are really just seeking their own things? And they are, 1 Timothy 4, caught up in deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Because they're just serving what they want. How many times have we woken up at different points and go, I'm just doing what I want to. I'm going through the motions of being a Christian, but I'm just doing, I'm really just doing what I want to. And I need to fix that. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, if we haven't woke up, we need to pinch ourselves and see if we are. Because the Bible says to test yourself and examine yourself to see if that might be the case with you. What is the motivation for your thought process? The thing that strikes me is that what you're saying here is that not only are most people caught up in demonic doctrine, where they're caught up in self-serving, all of us need to be testing ourselves to see if we might be there too. So everybody needs to be thinking about this. Everybody needs to appreciate the idea that, that demonic doctrines, and by the way, I take this all the way back to the worship of Baal, because I think the worship of Baal begins with the idea of, I'm going to give God what I want to give him. I take it back mm-hmm. to Cain and Abel. And Cain giving God the sacrifice that he wants to give him and Abel giving God the sacrifice that God desires, the one that was by faith. And I think it's always been like that. And that the sensual, earthly, carnal, demonic concepts are the ones that are rooted within us, that, that are our feelings and our desires. And our feelings and desires are liars. The the heart is more deceitful above all things, Jeremiah would say. Those kinds of truths are universal and constant. They've been with us since the human race began. Yeah. And you think about how many times the how many times the Bible talks about being seduced into sexual sin or you use the example of abortion, which I and compared that to the worship of the Baals or Moloch or one of the demonic gods in the Old Testament, that those were never gods, but people were willing to put their children on the altar. And it came from this reasoning of I'll give up my child to have a better harvest or I'll give up my child to have so that I can have this kind of success. Tell me what the reasoning is behind abortion. 
I'll, I'll sacrifice this child. I won't even call it a child, but because I don't want it to get in the way of my career or me finding true love. I really didn't love this person that I don't want to live a life of being bound to a woman that I don't really love. So I'm not going to, I'm going to compel her to go do away with the child. It's no different. It's appeasing the will of the flesh. Yeah, it's a human sacrifice with the same characteristics of the human sacrifices of old. That's the terrible truth about it. Perhaps the ignorance of some people not to even appreciate that it is human, a sacrifice that they're committing might make it slightly different, but in the end, not much. What's interesting about that is that the wisdom that they appeal to there is man's wisdom. That yeah, How many yeah. times did we hear, we used to hear that you could operate on a baby in the womb and it wouldn't because it wouldn't feel any pain or things like that. And it turns right. out, yeah, they, they do feel pain. They feel a lot of pain. And right. that... It's always earthly wisdom that somehow says what God said is not right for me in this instance, and I'm going to embrace this right. earthly kind of wisdom. All right. I don't know. We got a lot more to say about demon possession, but let me let you wrap it up. What do you got for us, Brian? A lot of people are still going to get caught up in this subject, and they're going to they're gonna chase different things. And it's a pop culture thing, yeah. the concept of demons. It's I like to watch movies that are entertaining and have silly subjects like this because they're complete fantasy. The truth is... Spiritual warfare is about the mind and understanding, and it's about resisting the desires of the flesh. That's the genuine danger that demons pose for us today, not in some way grabbing us as they did 2,000 years ago where they took control of a body. Instead, let me giving control of my future up to my desires. That's the great demonic danger I face today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in some ways our culture is by trying to make it more extravagant than it is, I think is somehow helping Satan hide in the background by making the more mundane things he do, he does seem less harmful. And so that's something that the Christian needs to have their eyes open to and be aware of. If you've joined us for all four podcasts, we absolutely want to thank you for being here. And if you do that, please share on Facebook or with your friends in some kind of way how you're listening. Maybe you're watching them on YouTube. Maybe you're listening to them on the RSS feed and listening in the audio version on Apple Podcasts or something like that. But if you would share that and help us grow, we'd love to get this message out because these are conversation starters for you to have with your friends. Maybe it will provoke some good Bible discussion that might actually eventually lead someone to the Lord. Brian and I would love to hear that. Even if we only get to play a small role in it, we'd love to be a part of it. So from all of us here at Biblically Speaking to all of you out there, we want to say, have a good day. Take care. God bless.